It was a long, hot, busy day in Miami, and it was our daughter Abby's fifth birthday. It had also been a tough day at work, various meetings and difficult conversations. I remember there was a missionary passing through Miami who needed transportation from the Miami airport to the Fort Lauderdale airport, so I gave her a ride. And as we passed the church, we stopped and quickly gave out cupcakes to the children in the preschool to celebrate Ab's birthday. After saying goodbye to the missionary, I had a little car trouble. AAA arrived and got me fixed up with a new battery. I stopped by Target, bought a few birthday presents for our now five-year-old. I picked up the kids at church. I learned that Clark had a trustee meeting that night, but no worries. I'll go home, wrap the presents, get the kids fed and bathed, and when Clark gets home, we'll have our perfect little family celebration. It was going to be great. Everything after the car trouble, seemed to be coming together just fine. Once we were home, I began wrapping presents, and after wrapping each gift, one of our nearly three-year-old twin boys would take it out to the family room. They kind of made a game of it. They were having so much fun. And after that last present was wrapped, I put away the paper, scissors, and tape, and I walked to the family room myself. And what I saw was not at all what I expected. The scene before me was not this peaceful, picturesque fantasy that I had imagined in my mind. Instead of those beautifully wrapped presents sitting on the coffee table ready for our family party later, Abby had opened up each one as soon as her brothers brought it to her, spoiling my image of this perfect little celebration. Well, as I said at the beginning, it had been a difficult and busy day, and I admit I was not at my best. So my anger came roaring out at the three of my children. One of the boys looked up at me with these wide searching eyes and simply said, what do we do, mommy? What do we do? His question has been seared into my brain ever since. It was not one of my finest parenting moments. I'm not trying to equate myself with God here, but sometimes sometimes when I think of the story of Job, I imagine him looking up into the heavens and crying out just like my son Zach did, what did I do, God? What did I do to deserve this suffering? Why was this joy taken out of my life? Why did this tragedy come to me? Maybe you have voiced those questions to God yourself. Maybe you have shouted at the heavens through your hot, sad tears. And if so, you are not alone. For everyone I have ever met knows something about unexplained suffering. Indeed, no one is immune to tragedy. We read about suffering all the time, from wildfires and droughts to hurricanes and disease. Needless suffering comes, and We don't always know why. And as we look at the story of Job, well, sometimes, I think sometimes we get confused and we wonder about the character of God and the meaning of such indiscriminate suffering. One theologian I read said, most people finish the book of Job feeling unsure they got the point, but convinced that they have experienced something profound. (laughs) Something profound indeed. Today, today we're continuing our comeback series, and we're looking at another meaningful character in the Bible. And you guessed it, today it is Job. 
And I want us to ponder his response to unimaginable tragedy and how he eventually reorients himself, how he comes back, if you will, to a place of trust in and awe of God. So let's review the story. No doubt you remember parts of it. We don't really know who wrote the book of Job, but its setting is long ago and far away. We believe it was written between the 6th and 4th centuries BC. It starts off almost like a once upon a time tale. Listen to chapter 1, verse 1. A man in the land of Uz was named Job. That man was honest, a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. Yes, Job was a blameless and upright man. He was extraordinarily blessed and prosperous. Indeed, he was famous all the world over and even in heaven. And then in the text that we just heard Linda read, it seems like we're transported to God's heavenly realm, the command center. And there is a strange conversation going on between God and one who is called the adversary. And the question arises, why is this man, Job, so pious and upright? Is it because he is blessed and prosperous? If it were not so, would he curse God? Now that's an interesting question, isn't it? How might you answer that in your own life? Hmm. Other questions surface throughout the book. Questions like, is God just? And does God run the world with justice? And in a way, all these questions are given to this man, Job, to answer in the midst of this unimaginable suffering. You see, this honorable man was visited by an incredible string of sufferings and affliction. He lost his property, of which he had much. He lost his family. He lost his standing in the community. Even his capacity for hope, it seems to have disappeared. Job is left with nothing. And then we have 39 chapters, 39 chapters of poetry, lament, and argument. 39 chapters of Job and his friends just hashing it out. His friends, oh, his friends were, well, they were not the most helpful, but I really think they were trying. They were offering Job the best of the collective wisdom of their day. They were saying things to Job that, well, he had no doubt shared with others before he ran into such ruin and misfortune. You see, the thinking of the day was that God is just and good and that God ordered the world to run in a certain way. And if you're good, you're blessed. And if you're bad, you suffer. I think it's kind of like what we call today the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel proclaims that if you're good enough, faithful enough, pray hard enough, then God will give you everything that your heart desires. Money in the bank, a healthy body, a thriving family, and of course, boundless happiness. The opposite, of course, is that if you don't get everything your heart desires, it is because you are not good enough or faithful enough or praying hard enough. The world's happenings aren't your fault. God isn't at fault. You are. What makes this line of reasoning so captivating is that I think it helps explain evil and suffering that are in the world. 
And when we are in such a desperate place of incredible pain and suffering, we want control over something. We want answers to things that seem, well, unexplainable. And that's what Job's friends were saying. Well, buddy, you must have done something wrong. I mean, come on, think hard, think about it. Or maybe, maybe Job, maybe you will do something wrong. So that's why all of this calamity has come to you. Oh, to have such friends as these, yikes. I mean, really, who needs enemies? So after days of sitting in silence, Job erupts into speech and he curses the day he was born. He demands answers, but not from his friends now, from God. He says things that maybe we wish to shout at God on our worst, most difficult days. I have no hope. I hate my life. Why is this happening to me, God? Why? Why? That's the question asked the world over, isn't it? Sure, the details change. They're different. But our questions are basically the same. Why is this happening to me? Why am I the one who was laid off? Why is it my spouse, who never smoked a day in their life, the one to get lung cancer? Why does my neighbor, whom I love so much, struggle so deeply with depression? Why is Alzheimer's allowed to rob so many of their memories? Why such suffering? And since there is all of this suffering, Job even dares to ask God, why should we trust you? We want answers, don't we? I remember the way Amy Tan put it in her book, The Kitchen God's Wife. One character, Pearl, says, My father had died of stomach cancer when I was 14. And for years, my mother would search her mind for the causes, as if as if she could still undo the disaster by finding the reason why it had occurred in the first place. We want answers. Yes, we want explanations. And so in the midst of Job's grief and his railing at God, God finally responds, a voice speaking out of the whirlwind. But there's no real answer to the question why. There's, there is only this, a series of interrogations. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? Have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Where is the dwelling place of light? Have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow or cut a channel for the torrents of rain? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you send forth lightning? And on and on it goes. One note I read said, in his ongoing complaints, Job demands a courtroom. In response, God offers the cosmos. I love that. God offers the cosmos. Yes, it is a breathtaking section of scripture. One of the most beautiful reminders of God's immense power and creative abilities. It's like God is saying to Job, 
Okay, I kind of think it's like God is knocking Job a little upside the head, reminding him that you cannot confine Yahweh. You cannot put God in a box. God is letting Job know that his view of creation is simply very limited. And Job is not in a position to accuse the Almighty. God's world is very complex and wonderful. It is miraculous and mind-blowing. I love how the Bible Project said it. God's world is amazing and very good. It's not perfect, nor is it always safe. The world has order and beauty, but it is also wild and sometimes dangerous. Yes, on and on the voice from the whirlwind speaks until finally Job comes to the point at which he recognizes that only God is God and that he, a mere human being, can never finally nor fully understand all the ways of God. And then Job kneels in humility and all before the creative force that lies at the heart of the universe and he offers a prayer to the Lord. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, but now my eyes see. And in the end, he admits his mistake in challenging God. Now I see that only you, O God, are holy. There's so much in the book of Job, much that we're not covering today, but among the things that are there, I think the story teaches us something about God and suffering the deep kind of suffering that Job endures sometimes just is. It's not the result of his fault or his failing. It is not the result of his faithlessness. Job, who was upright and pious, Job, who did no wrong, suffers. The book insists that suffering simply is a part of being alive. Job's faith, it did not shield him from this hard reality, but his faith helps him get through that painful grief, and he realizes that he is not alone. God hears his prayers. The book also teaches us not to put God in a box. God is so much bigger than any box we try to cram God into. Friends, hear that truth. God is bigger than that. But God is bigger than anything you can fathom, bigger than your past or your pain bigger than your anger or your doubt, bigger than your fear or your loneliness. God is bigger than you can ever imagine. And sometimes we just have to come to a place of trust, like Job did. A pastor friend of mine named Joanna shared a story. She said, earlier in my ministry, I walked through a very dark valley with a wonderful woman from the church. But this woman, in one terrible, violent afternoon tragedy, lost her son and her husband. The woman and wife's heart was as broken as any heart I've ever seen. I stopped by the house on the day of the funeral. The family that was left there was gathering for a bite of lunch. They asked me to join them, and I sat. A little granddaughter was at the table. Say the blessing, please, they asked her. So we bowed our heads, and the child began to pray. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. When the blessing was over, the grieving grandmother looked at me, and through her tears she said, at least that's the same. Even though everything else had changed, God is still great, and God is good, and God is bigger than our finite minds can ever comprehend. Friends, truly, 
I don't believe that we're going to get very far if we demand answers from God, because sometimes those answers just don't come. But I do believe it is perfectly acceptable to expect goodness from God. And I trust that God hears our prayers. I trust that in God's heart, there is a desire for healing and wholeness and life rather than death and hurt and pain. And I believe that the energy that lies at the heart of the universe is love. And that now and then, that divine energy is accessible to us like it was to Job. So that box, that box you try to keep God in, I hope you will open it wide and let God's love pour out flowing over you and filling you completely. Will you pray with me? O Lord, you laid the earth's foundations and placed its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted with joy. You alone comprehend the vastness of the universe. So, O Lord, give us wisdom in our hearts and understanding in our minds. Remind us that we are not alone. Remind us that there is tragedy and sadness in everyone's life. So teach us how to encourage each other and help bring us back to a loving relationship with you. Amen.